Hello and welcome to Overdrive, a program about trains, planes and automobiles, but mainly automobiles. I'm David Brown. And in this program we have news stories including vehicle sales figures continue to stumble as industry rethinks everything about supply. Electric car sales figures show promising signs and now you can electrify your old Mini. The feature news story is about the history and experiences of old Land Rovers and their owners. We hear from motoring journalist Paul Morell, artist and explorer Dean Oliver, off-road expert Rob Fraser and previous owner Brian Smith. There's some motoring minutes and in quirky news, Brian Smith and I discuss patching up footpaths with ceramics in an artistic way. You can find more information at drivenmedia.com.au with links to social media and podcasts. But time to start this program first with the news. The Federal Chamber of Automotive Industries vehicle sales figures for the first month of 2022 show a decline of nearly 5% compared to January 2020. January vehicle sales are typically well down on other months and there is the continued microprocessor shortage and COVID impacts. The disruptions have caused the industry to rethink some of their processes and structures. This is not a case where we have to wait a bit before we get back to normal. Roland Rivero is the product manager for Kia Australia. I think uh, global supply chains will never be the same again. Uh, many OEMs have realised it's sometimes it's not about the volume, it's, it's just about how much money you can actually make under the current circumstances where the demand is just so strong. Used car prices have taken off as well. With the situation with you know the shortage of semiconductor, semiconductor shortages, microchips, and the fact that you are stuck in your own home country, and the, the European trip that you might have had planned where you might have spent north of twenty, thirty thousand dollars $30,000, you've actually only got that spare that you could easily in, enjoy a brand new car, a brand new SUV. It's been an interesting last couple of, you know, last couple of years under COVID. It's definitely had a, a big dynamic change on the industry. One area of significant percentage growth is in electric vehicles. The FCAI figures do not include Tesla, as Tesla does not wish to pay the membership fee for the organisation. But the Electric Vehicle Council, after first releasing numbers, which were in error due to information supplied by Tesla, has now clarified that sales of electric vehicles, including plug-in hybrids, have nearly tripled in the past year from 6,900 in 2020 to 20,665 in 2021. EVs account for nearly 2% of market share of new vehicles, up from a 0.78% in 2020. If their figures are correct, the list of the top 10 manufacturers of full electric and or plug-in electric vehicles, number one is the Tesla Model 3, with nearly 60% of that segment of the market. Then the MG ZS, the Mitsubishi Outlander, the MG HS, the Porsche Taycan, the Hyundai Kona, the Volvo XC40, the Hyundai Ioniq, although there's a new model out, the Nissan Leaf and the Mercedes-Benz EQA. Another trend in this area is to replace the powertrains in old classic vehicles with fully electric componentry. The latest to offer this is the Mini Garage, where you can replace the aged 1275cc engine 
in an original mini of the type seen in the Italian job movie with a 90 kilowatt electric unit. The acceleration is better but not earth shattering and the range is only about 160 kilometres. Car clubs create communities where members meet, encourage and help each other and honour those who make a contribution. Overdrive's Dean Oliver recently posted this comment on our Facebook page. Yesterday I went to the funeral of a friend from our church, Tony French, who was for some years president of the Mini Car Club. There was an honour guard of minis, and Dean attached some photos that we have put on our Facebook page. Dean went on to say, Mini Car Club was a great organiser of events like the Naruma Boomer and at Hampton, and had connections with Bob Holden, Rauno Altonen, and even Paddy Hopkirk. The club seems to be going well, and the old-timers would have a treasure trove of stories to tell. But Dean added that it wasn't just the old-timers. He said, There were lots of anecdotes from the kids, learning to do handbrake turns in the Mini Cooper S, etc. Car clubs in those days were great places for kids to learn and have fun, doing motorcars, etc., without spending too much money and doing too much damage. And finally, he said... There was also an old Morris 10 there from the 1930s. And that has been the news. Last week in the news, we reported on the new Land Rover Defender 90, short wheelbase, four-wheel drive. The new vehicle represents a quantum leap for this model, which was produced in derivatives of its old form up to 2016, and then ceased production for a number of years until this new, totally revised version was released. The historical image of the Land Rover 90 is of a boxy three-door go-almost-anywhere vehicle, much loved by the UK military and farmers. Here in Australia, it made its name with sterling service in the building of the Snowy Mountains hydroelectric scheme. Up to 2016, it was not a vehicle built for comfort. Its history, then, is an interesting reflection on customer choice in the past, that was more forgiving of a vehicle's faults as long as it achieved what the image indicated, which in this case was off-road capability. We started our exploration of the 90, past and present, with motoring journalist Paul Morell. Paul, the Land Rover Defender, it is one that can get you to many locations, yet it's not one that will do it comfortably or hasn't been in the past. It's almost like Pilgrim's Progress. You have to <laughs> suffer your way through life for your reward at the end. Comfort has never been its major criteria, has it? No, that's a very interesting way of putting it, David. The Land Rover Defender in the past was a bit like the masochist's favourite. It would, as you say, take you almost anywhere that a, that a vehicle can go, but it was always a long and arduous process, and you were very glad to get out of it at the end, I must admit. You would have tested a few over the years? I have. We've, uh, I've been in Land Rovers and Defenders and all sorts of Land Rovers in various places around the country, and indeed in, in the UK, just to brag a little. And they were just incredible. We, we drove up rivers that were up almost to the door handles. We drove across the Tweed River on the Scotland border. We drove just in the most amazing places in Australia, of course. We drove on across the Gibb River Road. We drove from Kununurra to, to Broome. Just incredible machines that just go anywhere. 
Oh, of course, in the UK then, would you uh, have driven your Land Rover to Balmoral when the Queen invited you? Well, if the Queen had invited me, I certainly would have driven it there, David. I would have worn my green gumboots and my my, my uh, barber scarf and off I would have gone. <laughs> it has generated a sort of almost cult-like following, hasn't it? It has. It has. I mean, you know, we know that there are masochists in the world, so, yeah, they, they happily follow the... Uh, the Land Rover Defender. In fact, my next door neighbour uh, at one stage came to me and said she was thinking about buying one. She was English, of course, and had this vision of herself, I think, as being the lady of the manor. And she bought a short wheelbase Land Rover Defender, which was about the most uncomfortable thing I've ever sat in, particularly when I had to sit in the back mm. with my head jammed up against the roof and not being able to see out of it. Awful thing to do on an everyday basis. And she never drove it off-road, which was sort of defeated the purpose, I must admit. You're not exactly a basketball player, are you? <laughs> oh, no. No, no, no. It wasn't too bad in the front. But then, of course, if you sat in the front of the, the, the earlier model defenders, you then had to duck your head to look under the cant rail, which is the rail across the top of the windscreen. So wherever you sat in a Land Rover Defender, it was never quite the most comfortable place to be. It wasn't just the landed gentry that embraced this vehicle. Many farmers in Australia and adventurers employed this workhorse. The Overdrive program's resident artist, Dean Oliver, tells a family tale. It's my dear old Uncle Bill, David, uh, who was an old, an old dairy farmer, an old uh, lovely gentleman. And uh, <laughs> his farm vehicle was, was a very early, uh, probably Series 1 or very early Series 2 Land Rover, short wheelbase version. And it was his farm vehicle as well as the road car as well. And uh, he was a slow, careful driver. Easily annoyed by fast cars wanting to overtake him. And uh, he would uh, tra travel into town, which meant going over a long hill. And uh, he, he said that he would see the cars lined up behind him uh, in the rear vision mirror. But he didn't move over and just toddled along slowly. And he said to me, he said, if only they knew I was saving their lives. I, was, I, I thought that was a pretty brave comment because... People be queued up behind him would, would perform desperate overtaking movements, which are highly dangerous. And uh, poor old Bill, he was quite certain that he was saving their lives. Did he ever complain about the comfort of the vehicle? No, he was a um, he was a World War Two veteran who had done a lot of work in the islands and cramming into impossibly small spaces inside <laughs> aircraft. So uh, I think being in a uh, an old Land Rover was probably fairly comfortable compared to uh, working in the tropics in a um, fighter or something like that. Luxury. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> it had a great heritage, didn't it? it? It was loved by the royals and farmers. You remember it in your youth? Was that something? Oh, absolutely. Um, my earliest motoring memories, Land Rovers, feature quite prominently in them. And uh, when I st started to become interested in travelling in the outback and outback history, and uh, I read a book by uh, Len Bedell, got it right here, Too Long in the Bush. And he was the last, one of the last of the great Australian explorers who uh, opened up far northwestern South Australia when the Woomera rocket range was under construction. And his job was to go out and survey roads to get access. And the, the famous Gun Barrel Highway was his creation. A little Land Rover and a team, a team that consisted of a Land Rover, a bulldozer and a grader. And they just went out and he would uh, just survey dead straight lines, bashing through the bush, incredibly primitive. No such thing as GPS or Android connectivity and uh, things like that. And uh, he, would, he would just 
travel a, a, a dead straight path through the bush and then he would fire a, a flare and then the grader driver miles behind him would see the flare and then just aim his grader directly at where the flare was and then Len would just move on to the next spot. But uh, it was just adventure and it was fabulous. And, uh, and so the old Land Rover was just so intricately bound up in, in that part of Australia's history, which included the Snowy Mountains scheme and the amazing uh, construction that went on there in the, in the 1950s. And uh, the Land Rover played a, an enormous part in, in that engineering. If you have a love of a vehicle, it usually stayed in the family till the end. Yes, they, they moved uh, into central New South Wales and, and, of course, the Land Rover was such an important part of the, uh, of the family farm that it went with them. And uh, over the years, it just became that wonderful old farming mobile tool shed. Long after it had run out of registration, uh, dear Bill would uh, toddle around from paddock to paddock and back to, back to the workshop and the farm. And the, the, the old Land Rover was full of fencing wire and tools and... Uh, bits of machinery and spiders and snakes and, <laughs> and the dear old dog Toby, Toby the dog who was Bill's constant companion. A kennel as well. <laughs> yes, indeed, yeah. So I, I'm, uh, you know, the, the dear old Land Rover, probably, well, it ran out, of, ran out of registration, it ran out of brakes, but it was so slow that, uh, and the country was pretty flat, so there wasn't too much need. I think Bill would just roll to a stop. Uh, no need to worry about brakes. <laughs> For all the romantic images, for those who have moved on from early Defenders, the starry-eyed vision of the past are tinged, if not carved, into the memory. Overdrive's resident transport planning expert, Brian Smith, dabbled in the Land Rover fraternity in his youth. Brian, a few years ago, we road-tested the then-latest version of the Defender. was the long wheelbase. What do you remember of that? Probably my uh, physiotherapist chiropractor <laughs> remember most about it, David. It was uh, absolutely a compelling example of how little distance that Land Rover had made in ergonomics. It, it immediately took me back to being in an old Series 2 Land Rover, but I was just stunned at how the advances of the past 20 years had completely passed by the people who designed that interior. I think you mentioned that no one that understood the word ergonomics had been near the design, wasn't it? That was one of, one of your lines to it. You had driven much earlier versions? Yes, yes. Series 2 Land Rovers and Defenders and 90s and 110s. I've driven quite a few Land Rovers. And, and it's not a car that you enjoy owning. You enjoy the idea of owning it. But in terms of living with them, um, they, they are really, they just remind you how uncomfortable you are, how poorly ventilated they are, you know, how the steering wheel is in the wrong position, the, the seat sort of off to the side. Not Alfa Romeo weirdness, but just straight, upright, I'm in a vehicle that's designed for some other type of creature. But you own some. Well, yeah, it's, a, it's one of those things where it's a vehicle that, that you always want to own. They, they look great, they, they give off this this sort of um, independent, bush-bashing, adventure, exploration kind of thing. Um, I mean, it, it goes with the territory. You know, they'll go anywhere, you throw stuff in the back, and, you know, they're a, they're a fantastic vehicle. But to live with it as, a, as your daily driver is, I think, a, a, an awful experience. And 
and it, uh, it it's a vehicle that, like I say, you buy but you don't enjoy, and you um, then get to a point where you where you actually sell them because you can't live with the car anymore. Did you get to the great outdoors? Did you actually use it oh, for that? Yes, yeah. So in my youth, I was uh, I used to do a bit of um, rallying. I uh, was in the sort of into caving and rock climbing and camping. So we spent a lot of time driving to very remote places and very, very rough bush tracks and exploring. And uh, yeah, so it was a vehicle that that's where it was great. Not so much on the open road, on, on little dirt tracks and things and forest, forest tracks. But where it was difficult was just driving in normal roads or, um, you know, driving in the rain. You always had to get a run up, David. I found, you know, if there was a steep hill, <clears throat> then you needed to really get that car moving as fast as you could down the hill. If you had any chance of getting up the hill, and so you would be rowing quickly through the gears as you're going up, just to try and maintain some momentum until you were then down in second and just grinding your way up the hill, being passed by semi trailers. Land Rover takes the rarer path in building a three-door short wheelbase four-wheel drive. The benefit is to make for very good performance off-road. Rob Fraser from osroma.com.au points out the value of having a short wheel-based vehicle. They're actually better off-road than a normal four-wheel drive for a number of reasons, not the least of which is the fact that they're smaller, more nimble, a tighter turning circle if you're in tight tracks, and ramp over, which is the area between the, the two wheels, because it's shorter, you're not going to get hung up on rocks or moulds of dirt or stuff like that more. They're actually a lot better off-road. But that translates into not being quite as good on-road with a shorter wheelbase. The shorter wheelbase, that's a little bit like Suzuki used to be, wasn't it? Well, ah, that it was a thing that made them very nimble in off-road situations, surprisingly good when some big, longer wheelbased vehicles would struggle. And if you think about the type of three-door, which is what we call them, the, the, the two-door, three-door type mm. uh, four-wheel drives, you've got the Suzuki Vitaras, which I've actually owned a couple of in the past. You've got, the, of course, you've got the, the, the Jeep Wrangler and the Jeep Wrangler Rubicon. Even Pajero and Land Cruiser Prado had three-door versions at one stage. And Toyota's actually had a few cracks at the three-door four-wheel drive scenario. And, um, you know, you'd almost call the FJ Cruiser a three-door, three-and-a-half-door. Mm. And, and, again, very good, very popular. You drive them off-road, they're, they're great. But I, for some reason, it doesn't translate into sales success, with the exception of the Defender 90 and the Jeep. Paul Morell has experience in this area as well. I was doing advertising for Land Rover many years ago, which was not an easy task. And my art director at the time had one of those little Daihatsu four-wheel drives, uh, ah. the ones that look like a post box. Mm. And, uh, yeah, we'd, we'd get to certain places to do photography and he would say, oh, take the, take the Land Rover up there and we'll photograph it up there. Or he'd call me from up the top of the hill where he'd driven his Daihatsu and say, bring the Land Rover up here and we'll photograph it up here. And it was amazing how often the thing would beach itself or mm. strand itself on a rock because that longer wheelbase made it less manoeuvrable in tight conditions. The other thing to keep in mind with the new one is, of course, it weighs 2,300 kilograms. So mm. that's a lot of weight to be thumping through the bush. And that sort of weight can do a fair bit of damage to the environment. So then, does the new Land Rover Defender 90 live up to this expectation? There's one thing you can guarantee is that uh, Land Rover and, and Jeep will never forego their, their off-road credentials. I mean, that's, that is what they're about. 
as they get more comfortable, they get more luxurious, they get bigger, they still have to meet very, very stringent off-road requirements. Whether or not they get used there as often as they used to is, is an open question. But yes, they do have to work incredibly well off-road. And they do. You get into one, and you've done this as well. You drive one down a track or head up towards a hill and you think, it's never going to get up here. And it just, it, they do. They just, they climb, they, they, they drive down incredibly steep gullies. They drive over obstacles. They are quite incredibly capable vehicles. Being good off-road is one thing, but you often travel on more mainstream roads to get to the start of your great outdoors expedition. And you might use the vehicle during the week for the usual activities. In models past, on-road performance was severely compromised. Rob thinks the new one has a much better balance between the two conditions. The new Defender itself is, is chalk and cheese to the old model, as you know. It's very much more almost like a Range Rover Sport in the way it rides and the way it handles and everything. It's, it's so quiet, it's so smooth, and yet so capable off-road. They've done an awesome job on it. And the Defender 90, the three-door, has, maintains all of that ability and on-road ride and capability just in the shorter package. So I've got a, an acquaintance of mine who's a car collector and he's got, you know, he's got a, a lot of fairly exotic sort of cars, a la Rolls-Royce, Lamborghini, that type of stuff. He, he bought himself a normal two-door ute to run around in and he bought himself a, a Defender, I think it was the, the X model, I can't remember off the top of my head, it's about 180000 or something and he said that's the one he takes every day. Yes, indeed, and that is as far removed from the old ones as you could possibly imagine. The new one is um, quite, a, quite a step forward for Land Rover. It is actually comfortable. It is actually stylish. Um, and, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a good thing. It's stylish, yet it pays homage to the original shape and, and image of the, uh, the older ones. Yeah, I think you know you'd be you'd be silly if you were Land Rover or Jeep or any of those people. In fact, to uh, to ignore your heritage and your past. So yes, of course it pays homage homage to the uh, to the previous ones. Um, not so convincingly in some places. I mean, it, it has silly things that you know, like it has plastic plastic um, checker plate on the on the mudguards, for example, which is not very convincing when you're talking about a serious off road vehicle, but you know, as you say, paying homage, not necessarily staying true to the spirit. Yes, they were once uh, metal plates that meant that you could stand on the, the mud guards and, you know, the bonnet sort of area and, and do mm. things, uh, whereas yep. when you make it plastic and that, you think that you might well break it and end up costing a squillion dollars to replace it. Yeah, I mean, it's it's... It was. You used to stand on the front of the car to do all sorts of things. And it was because it was a working tool, you weren't concerned about dents. In fact, they came from the factory with dents all down the side. So it didn't matter if you dented it a bit more. Um, but the new one, you wouldn't, you can't imagine getting up on the, on the mudguard to do anything. And you, to be honest with you, I can't imagine many people even taking it down a, down a, a dirt track with trees on the side. But there you are. I remember many years ago that they stopped building the old ones in 2016, I think. Uh, but the last yep. one of the old ones they brought out, I remember the CEO from Land Rover in Australia uh, looking at it and saying, look, it's still got rivets showing on the outside. <laughs> um, this one doesn't, but it has it on a sort of a plastic 
um, replica almost of like rivet type things on the inside a little bit around the doors uh, that makes you sort of feel at home does it well what could i say again you know these these exposed screw heads and hex bolts and things uh, they're more for i think they're more for image and style than they are for practicality i guess you know i can't again i can't see too many people getting up there and hosing the inside of a, the new defender out the new model has one quirky feature that brings us back to the potential in the royal household. Dean takes up the story. I notice also, David, that in the in the new ninety series, that uh, there's like a a, um, a canvas roof option, which uh, is retractable. Mm. I, I understand, so you could actually stand oh. on the passenger seat. And you could do the royal thing as as the uh, Land Rover was driving along. You could stand well above the roof of the vehicle and just give the royal, the royal way. way. I think it would be wonderful, most appropriate. It's not a roof like a normal sunroof that might be metal that folds back or slides back. It concertinas back like a Fiat 500 of the old days, you know, almost like opening a can of sardines, that it sort of folds back in the way. But I hadn't thought of its royal potential. Of course, now I understand. And also the explorer potential too. I can imagine uh, standing there in the, with the pith helmet and the, the binoculars looking for uh, wildebeest on the, on the horizon. <laughs> I see you've captured the spirit of the vehicle, Dean. By Jove. Absolutely, <laughs> old man. <laughs> we will do a more technical and traditional road test of the Land Rover Defender 90 soon. Coming up, we'll have a motoring minute, and then Brian will take us through a quirky news story to do with fixing cracks in pavements in an artistic way. You're listening to Overdrive. Toyota added a hybrid version to its hugely successful RAV4 range in 2019 and updated with an expanded range in November 2021. I spent a week in the RAV4 Cruiser all-wheel drive hybrid priced from $48,000 plus usual costs. The hybrid comes with a 2.5-litre four-cylinder petrol engine with an electric motor generator that drives through a six-step CVT. Opting for all-wheel drive adds a second electric motor on the rear axle bringing combined output to 163 kilowatt, while also adding trial mode function that alters things to maximise traction in slippery conditions. As you would expect, the economy is outstanding and we averaged around 5.5 litres per 100 kilometres on our tests. The RAV4 Cruiser also comes with three-stage front seat heating and ventilation with eight-way power adjustment for the front seats. Inside, the Cruiser comes well-equipped and is a quiet and comfortable place to be. It's no surprise that the Toyota sells a lot of RAV4 hybrids. They are easy to live with, economical, comfortable and practical. Pretty much everything a buyer will need. This is Motoring Minute. I'm Brianna Fraser. You're listening to Overdrive. So let's talk about the unusual. And uh, we've covered this issue in other ways in the past. But let's hear Brian Smith tell us what it's all about. Brian? David, we've often reported about quirky and interesting ways uh, that people draw attention to potholes and, and uh, damaged pavements. Uh, there was one, I think we reported on, David, where the um, where a gentleman was spray painting anatomical shapes of some kind on the road as a, as a way of encouraging the road authority to come and fix a pothole because there was this incredibly rude... Ah, can we just say it was one 
anatomical shape. Okay. Yep. Yeah. Uh, one in particular that I yep. think, and, and what a great idea. If you're going to come out and sort of cover it in paint, well, you might as well fix the pothole while you're there. Hmm. So it's a little bit crass, right? There's a fellow um, in a guy called MMM who uh, lives in Lyon in France, and he's known as the pavement surgeon. He has a different approach to it, David. He puts together little mosaic sections to replace cracked or remove or missing pieces of pavement. They're beautiful, David, but they're extremely pretty. So he's been doing it since about 2016. He'll find a, a sort of a small hole or a crack or a missing piece of pavement, and he'll very beautifully create a mosaic section to fill in that gap. And they're just lovely, like a, a sections around you know, access holes or cracked pavements with this almost a sense of a, of a hidden city beneath the, the bitumen uh, where you get a, 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 like a, a glimpse of a, a Roman floor, mm. you know, made from these mosaics. It's absolutely beautiful. His name is MMM, E-M-E-M-E-M. Uh, and uh, his latest work is, is uh, from the end of last year around the Grand Paris Express in saint maucrety And he ended up basically an ex- exhibition. All right, Brian, lovely to talk to you. Thank you for your time. Pleasure, David. You're listening to Overdrive. Premium dual-cab utes have been a high-growth market in recent years, none more so than the Volkswagen Amarok collaboration with the Walkinshaw Tuning House. Originally, there were two road-based versions, the W580 and the W580S, with additional features including suspension tuning, 20-inch alloy wheels, 50-series road-based tyres, along with heated, electronically adjustable seats and cosmetic features. Recently, they added the W580X, aimed at the off-road market again with an off-road suspension tune and raised front suspension, custom bash plate and rock sliders, and additional underbody protection. This latest model is available in April 2022. The smooth and responsive 3-litre V6 Amarok engine produces 190 kilowatts and 580 newton meters, running through an 8-speed automatic transmission with constant all-wheel drive. Even though the Amarok is showing its age in internal design and technology, it remains possibly the best on-road ute, with ride and handling more like an SUV rather than a ute. The Walkinshaw Amarok specialty vehicles come with many additions, but are expensive. This is a Motoring Minute. I'm Rob Fraser. And this has been Overdrive. My thanks to Paul Morell, Dean Oliver, Rob Fraser, Brian Smith, twice, and Paul Just for all their great help to produce this program. Overdrive is syndicated across Australia on the Community Radio Network. For more information, go to drivenmedia.com.au, which has past programs and links to the socials and podcasts. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening. <laughs>